what drives price mostly for the more successful contractors is size. The bigger you are, the more EBITDA, the more revenue, you're going to get the better outcome, right? And, it, and it's a part of it's just kind of a personal decision as to when you want to do it. You're listening to Toolbox of the Trades, brought to you by Service Titan, a podcast for top service professionals where we interview leaders for their best tips and tricks of the trades. Learn how industry trailblazers stay ahead of the competition and how you too can be at the forefront of an industry. Let's jump in. Hello, contractors, and welcome to the Toolbox for the Trades. Today's guest is Fred Silberstein, president of SFNP Advisors, a business brokerage firm that specializes in the merger and acquisition of trade businesses. Fred himself has personally overseen over $1 billion in business sales. I picked his brain on what contractors should do today if they want to sell their business in the future or acquire similar operations to grow theirs. This conversation was fascinating and for me a little intimidating, but Fred was an absolute delight and patiently answered all of my questions. If you want more tips from Fred or his business partner, Brian Cohen, go to servicetitan.com SFP or click the link in our show notes to access our exclusive webinar with them. Enjoy. Fred, welcome to the Toolbox for the Trades podcast. Thanks, Jackie. I am super excited to uh, have you join me today, and I'll tell you why. What you specialize in, I have very little knowledge on, and I always love talking to people who are going to teach me something new. Um, So for the folks that are listening, why don't you just tell us who you are and what you do? Perfect. So again, my name is Fred Silverstein. I'm a CPA by trade. I actually uh, grew up at Price Waterhouse, I like to say, it was, it was a little bit of an education there. You know, I started there, started my uh, professional career. In 1998, I was recruited out of there by a startup HVAC consolidator called Blue Dot Services. Blue Dot, like many others in the late 90s, it was a failed uh, roll-up attempt. So, you know, everyone thought we would go public and it ultimately didn't work. But I went around the country and I made a lot of folks millionaires. I grew Blue Dot from 75 million to, to 350 million. When Blue Dot imploded, I, I helped sell the uh, some of the locations back. You know, for they, they were discounted at that point, right? We sold them back for nickels, dimes, and quarter and quarters on the dollar. But a lot of the great companies that are part of Service Titan today and, and you know came out of that that Blue Dot in, in environment. And so after Blue Dot, after the Blue Dot implosion, service experts saw that we that we got some meaning meaningful value for um, for some underperforming assets. They brought in our group. We helped them unload. I think it's 54, 54 locations. I had a client recently. He was like, eh, I think it was in the 40s. Be that as it may, you know, so worked on kind of the disposition process through that. Shortly thereafter, I met the ARS guys in 2006, and they took it out from Service Master, and they obviously appreciated me for, you know, the, the context that I had made in the industry. And when they had something to sell or they had something to buy, I, I, helped, I helped them on, on the uh, – on, on both on both levels, right? Both on their you know underperforming assets, and there are a few of those. I think one of their biggest acquisitions to date is a company up in New Jersey called AJ Perry. I helped them buy that that business, and then for a while, you know, you had kind of the the big you had the big guys, you know, the big strategics like service experts and ARS, and there was always a, a certain amount of deals that were being done locally. You know, guy buying one of his uh, one of his competitors down the street and. Really what happened about five, six, seven years ago, private equity came into the space, kind of found out about, uh, about all the uh, HVAC contractors and plumbing contractors, you know, created a, a thesis around it. And fortunately, I've, I've been able to put together a lot of the uh, bigger private equity deals. Last year, as an example, we closed 15 transactions, totaling about $190 million. This year, given COVID and everything else, we've already closed four transactions, have another one under LOI. Um, this year in closed revenue, we're already at uh, 85 million. So we're not tracking too far below on a, on a, revenue, on a revenue basis from the deals we did last year. Throughout uh, my career, I've done, done over a billion dollars, 1.06 in, in closed transactions and, and, 200 and, uh, and 250 deals. I'll go back. Um, I'll go back from 2000. Let's say 2015. And I'll name one big transaction in, in, in each of the years. 
Um, in 2015, if you're familiar with the Wrench Group, I sold uh, Cool Ray to Alpine. Alpine later sold it to InvestCorp. Today, it's owned by Leonard Green. Obviously, the Wrench Group is you know pretty pretty dominant player in the space. 2016, I sold uh, an asset in Louisville, Kentucky, Downhower Plumbing. I sold that to uh, Trivest, which they they now operated they now operate under uh, TermPoint. 2017, the big one in that year was was Horizon Horizon Home Services in the in the Northeast. Sold helped them partner up with uh, with Sun Capital under Sun's guidance. I uh, I've done six out of their ten acquisitions. Sun recently sold it to uh, New Mountain at the end of last year. Um, going back to Trivest including the two, two deals, three deals I sold to them this year. I think I've done seven out of, out of their 15 uh, transactions. Um, brings me to 2018. I did the Gettle bomb transaction. I think Gettle's uh, another big uh, service Titan uh, member. And uh, 2019, I did the best home services in, uh, in Southwest Florida. 2020, I've done uh, Anthony, um, Anthony Plumbing, Heating, Cooling and Electric in Kansas City. Um, there was another one. Uh, they're going to convert him soon to uh, to service Titan Home Comfort Experts in uh, in Indiana. So certainly have done. Those are the bigger deals. There's been a lot of obviously smaller deals along the way, but those are you know some of the more memorable deals that I've worked on. So you know what you're doing when it comes to it, selling businesses and valuating them. It's been uh, it's been 22 years of uh, of doing this. So I think I've learned a, uh, learned a couple things along the way, and and definitely. Uh, you know, I, I was actually uh, talking to uh, Kevin uh, Cumberford, uh, uh, who just completed a deal with the with the Wrench Group, and it's you know we were both saying how fortunate we are to uh, to be and be a part of this industry. And I've enjoyed working uh, with the contractors through the year, and I think I've added uh, you know the specialization that I work in is is pretty meaningful in, in working with these guys. I love that. Um, and I'm so happy you brought up private equity. That wasn't part of my initial questions with you, but that's definitely something I want to get back to, especially towards the end of this conversation. Um, so I love that you also started off at, at PwC. So it sounds like PwC, Blue Dot, Service Experts, The Wrench Group, Termpoint, Horizon Home Services, Gettle, Best Home Services. Dude, you have worked with like some of the most impressive service companies in the United States. That's awesome. Um, it, it is. It's been a great ride, and 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 I think there's more to come. So there's, uh, you know, the interest in the space. It's it just, you know, we're an essential. Uh, we're essential. We work for essential home service providers, right? And it just seems like, when I was having this conversation with a client whose deal's not complete, so I won't mention his name. But you know, the the uh, the amount of interest in the space, it's it's incredible. People have to deploy capital, you know, somehow, and so private equity really likes, you know, has really come up with some thesis, some good thesis about the space. And there's been a lot of success stories, right? So for every time that, you know, Wrench has been sold or Horizon's been sold again, and, and it keeps happening at a higher multiple, you know, there's other, there's other copycats, which is the sincerest form of flattery, right? So there's other groups that want to get in. We tend to get, you know, on, on average one to two, sometimes three in a week, believe it or not, who are just have found out about us, asking us, you know, who we have, can they uh, get involved in, in some of our processes? I love that. Um, so, you know, you started at PricewaterhouseCooper, which, uh, you know, everyone is very familiar with, PwC. Yeah, um, I, I was there actually when it was just PW and then they merged in with uh, PwC. So that just sort of ages myself. Like <laughs> back then it was uh, the big six and today it's uh, only the big four and you know, I was there when they merged in with Coopers, and I guess that was some more M&A experience. And prior to even, you know, Blue Dot, what I really enjoyed in, in that in my background was the uh, was the deals. I worked on some big transactions at, at PW, like Carnival Cruise Line, Bacchanard Cruise Line. I was on WR Grace. They were always buying and selling. And, you know, guys, when when you get to a transaction, the, the firms that buy you always do quality of earnings. So I was one of those guys who could go in and, and really understand gap accounting and understand the numbers. But I, I've parlayed that into, you know, the career that I've built in, in terms of, you know, helping clients with, uh, with their succession planning. Got it. Um, when you decide, when you first were working as a CPA, when you first got into, you know, PW, uh, did you know you wanted to go into mergers and acquisitions or did you just kind of find sure. that naturally? Shortly thereafter, like I got exposed to some transactions and some big transaction and, you know, the education and being one of the, I'll call them the Q of E guys or an auditor, it's, it's, it's really great. It was a great basis for what I do today and understanding, you know, certainly the gap side of, of accounting and understanding all that. 
very prevalent in, in working with contractors. And there's specific things that that apply to contractors, right? How you defer revenue for your service contracts and warranty reserve and allowance for doubtful accounts. But, you know, so that was a great basis for it. But what I discovered is I, I enjoyed the art of a transaction and Blue Dot, obviously, you know, that, that experience at Blue Dot, I got my feet wet certainly and was able to do, you know, a lot of transactions at in, in a short period of time that were, you know, it was pretty fluid environment and, and, and what, I, I never stopped, right? So while I was at Blue Dot, I, I actually had said to my boss and you know, after a couple of years, I said, well, where do you see me in five years? And she's like, with a lot more M&A experience, but you're not taking my job. She was the, uh, the CFO at the time. And I said, great, can I start SF&P Advisors and keep you guys as a client? And I launched SF&P Advisors January 1st of 2001 with Blue Dot as my first client. And it just continued to uh, snowball from there. What do you like about working with uh, service businesses specifically? You know, there's a lot of things I like. I mean, it, it's it's really a great industry, and I think the the dynamics in it are are, uh, are are really incredible. A lot of times, these guys really don't realize the asset they built and the and the value that they've created. And I think there's a level of sophistication that I can provide and help them. You know, kind of analyzing their business and and what it's worth and what it's worth in real dollars. And I think a lot of contractors get so caught up in the day-to-day and the operations and the mundane, and I'm able to help them take a step back and analyze the big picture, where they want to go, what they want to do, and what's, what's their goal, right? You know, most people would say, and there's, there's some out there that, you know, they're buying in, it's, they're staying in the family, and they don't ever want to do a transaction. But I'd say for the majority of them, you, you hear the conversations are like, you know, I'm buying it for one day, you know, I'm in the industry for one day to, you know, have a transaction, the one day to have that very meaningful life-changing event, gener- sometimes generational changing wealth and, and those type of things. That's awesome. That has to be really, and the fact that so many of these businesses are so personal and they're, they're essentially empires that owners have built on their own, especially when they get to the point where you can make a transaction, there's probably a, a lot of feelings and emotion that go into every deal that you do, I would imagine. So I always say, you know, for the sellers, it's very emotional, right? And it's, it's like their baby and it, and, it, and it becomes a very emotional thing. For us at SFMP, this is our business. So we try to take the emotion out. Uh, one of the, the home comfort experts deal that I, that I did recently at the end of the deal, when the deal closed, he's, he called me up the next day and he's like, you know, you're also a psychologist, right? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And he's like, you know, you kept me calm and sane through the whole process. He's like, I, I couldn't have done it without you. You know, I needed, you know, somebody to, to kind of hold me, you know, and, and, and transactions, it's, there are emotional, there's things that come up during the transaction and it's good to be level-headed and, 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 and hold their hand kind of throughout the process. You know, they've got to be, and, and on top of it, while they're doing a transaction, they still have a business to run, right? And so going through a transaction becomes, you know, in essence, a second full-time job. It's almost like a, another marriage that, that they're embarking on, depending on, you know, whether the owner's staying and leaving, and that's kind of a separate thing. But it is, uh, it is emotional for them, and it's easy for them to, uh, you know, get caught up in it. And we try to, you know, be, be a calming influence and let them know, you know, it's going to be okay. We're going to get through this, whatever issues pop up. I used to say this at Blue Dot, and it's still prevalent in all the deals today. Every deal has adjustments, right? Every deal, they're going to find something, there's going to be adjustments. It's a question of how material those adjustments are and what the buyer's view on those, on those are. And a lot of times, depending on who the buyer is, you know, they'll see the bigger picture, but there are some, and you get into, you know, I hate the word retrading and I, I hate when, when I'm involved in a process and something, you know, goes, goes a little squirrely. And because of my background as a CPA, I'm able to look at that and say, that was justified or that was not justified. Right. And sometimes, you know, in accounting, it's a lot of it is black and white and some of it is gray. And when it's subjective and the auditors are using their opinions, I'm able to push back on that and say, look, this, this isn't fair what you guys are doing. And Sometimes it is, sometimes there could be a revenue recognition problem that's totally justified, something along those lines, and sometimes it's not. So we've got a, a unique ability to be able to really look through and see what the guys are coming out with on, on, on the quality of earnings and see how uh, pertinent and relevant those, those adjustments are. And then we can push back accordingly. Nice. I, I'm trying hard not to get into the weeds because I don't want to be talking about re- sure. revenue recognitions for the full right. hour. But I want you to know that literally, I would say every 
eighth word you're saying, I'm like, wait, what's that? Uh, but I am following. So I'm, I'm super excited about this conversation. Um, so the big one I really wanted to ask, because I think it's on your website, it's like something of 90% of all the transactions you've done have been in the service space. So given that our audience is um, our contractors, you know, service contractors who are in the process of building their own business, or, you know, they're either, you know, first year, fifth year, 10th year, maybe looking to yep. sell. What are some of the biggest lessons you've learned in your 22 years of experience and what would sure. you like to, what kind of knowledge would you like to impart on our listeners today? Sure. I, I would say some of the bigger lessons that I've learned in, 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 in doing this for as long as I do, it's, it's, it's understanding, you know, what your transaction goal is, right? What do you want to get out of a transaction? And, and that can be different for, for a lot of different folks. One is, you know, there's, there's, there's obviously the, the liquidity that, that comes with that, but there's a lot of there's a lot of other different things. So I think for contractors, for them understanding what's their definition of success, you know, and, and what does that look like? And maybe that's a dollar amount, maybe it's finding a partner to grow with, you know. And and in Horizon's case, when first time I met those guys, they they were eight million. When I sold it to them on the way out, they were twelve million. When I did their private equity deal a few years ago, they were 130 million. Today they're 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 close to 300 million, right? So they needed a, a, a PE firm to help supercharge that growth. And, and they had the secret sauce and have, you know, how they do things. And it was just a question of rolling out to the other locations. And they got so big that it, it becomes, you know, to the point where it doesn't necessarily make sense to keep doing it on your own. Right. So it provides a liquid, a liquidity event and it provides a, a vehicle for growth. And, and so, you know, it's, it's different in every circle. It's different in every circumstance, but I think, you know, for contractors understanding the keys that they want to get out of the uh, transaction, right? It's, you know, and, and exactly what that looks like. And, you know, th there's been other transactions where guys want to get out and they're like, look, I'm selling the business. I don't want a partner. I've never had a boss. You know, it's an exit for me. And that's fine. But I think the clarity around that as well, you know, I, I did a trans another transaction in, uh, in, in, Southwest, in Southwest Florida. I don't, I don't know if they're uh, Service Titan. I think they are now because they're part of uh, TurnPoint. All TurnPoint puts everybody on Service Titan. And I had a conversation with the seller about, well, what do you really want to do? And he's like, well, I'm not sure, this and that. And I'm like, and then we got to the, to the crux of it. And he's like, I want to be done. And I'm like, okay, you know, let's make sure that those expectations are clear. And I negotiated a deal where, where he was done in, you know, about three months. And, you know, for some of them is it's a lifestyle, right? They've developed a really good business and the business runs on their own. They're not day-to-day -day operating in. They want to make sure, you know, if they do a transaction, they're not going to come back in and say, oh, I, I sold my business and I, now I've got to be there, you know, 50 hours a week, right? They want to keep running the business the way we have. And I think what's kind of nice is through COVID and all and everything that's happening now, we're a lot more virtual. So people can run these businesses, you know, remotely. I, I talked to somebody yesterday has a nice sized business in, in Texas and they're like, yeah, we're up in Colorado where, where you are. And, you know, we're able to run the business, you know, kind of remotely and we're doing our huddles every day and, you know, it's, we're just not physically in the same location. And so that's, that's been interesting to see as well. But, you know, I, I think it's important to understand your, your expectations, you know, of what you're trying to get out of a transaction and, you know, one of the things that we've seen people do, one of the mistakes that, that people have done kind of throughout is they like to move the goalposts, right? So they come into the transaction thinking they want one thing and we start giving them options for that one thing. And then they're like, well, I, you know, maybe I want this. We, we did a, a big mechanical contractor a couple of years ago and the guy was not sure if he wanted to partner with the strategic, if he wanted to be PE and you know, we went down kind of several paths until he kind of formulated and came back to like, I think the best opportunity for my team and for myself is, is to do a, a, a transaction with the strategic buyer as opposed to, you know, doing his own thing. So it's important to understand kind of going into the transaction, you know, what, what you're looking for. Got it. What kind of transactions um, would you say are the most popular or tend to be the most beneficial to contractors who have built up an asset and now can sell it? So I think, again, I think it depends on the contractor and what they're looking for, right? There's, there's certainly options out there. There's totally different options. And when we, when we think about private equity, a lot of the things that private equity likes to do, and there's guys who will buy a majority position, there's guys who will buy a minority position. But, and the interesting thing about that, I'll take you into the weeds just a little bit here, but let's say we had a $60 million transaction and the, and the buyer was bringing in $30 million worth of debt and $30 million worth of equity and the seller wanted to maintain 
a uh, 30% interest, right? So on a $60 million with $30 million of debt and $30 million of equity, if he wanted to own 30%, you're just using that 30 million. So 30 million times three would be, uh, would be 9 million, right? So that would come off and then he would own, uh, he would own, you know, nine divided by 30, he would own nine divided by 30 would be his, would be his percentage, right? So it becomes, because they bring in, uh, bring in some leverage, the equity becomes really cheaper for the guys. And I think a lot of the contractors don't quite understand that they're able to buy in at cheaper equity because of the, uh, because of the debt portion of the deal. Most private equity firms are called leverage buyout firms. So they are using a certain amount of leverage and because they're using leverage, you're able to buy in at, at the equity becomes cheaper than the total enterprise value. Make sense? I mean, as much as it possibly can for someone who does not do math well. Um, <laughs> I will say to anyone listening, if you think that you are bad at math, I thought that for a long time too, but it usually just means that you need to concentrate a little bit harder on it. I want right. to keep this, you are talking and I could tell just by the way you're talking about this, that you love your line of work and you're really passionate about it. So I do not want to bog you down with giving Perfect. me an accounting lesson. Yeah. So I, one thing that really caught my attention with what you just said is, um, you know, we need to figure out what the contractor actually wants. And you mentioned even before, you know, that guy calls you and he thanked you for being his therapist during his, sa yes. his sale. So like, what are some of the questions? I would assume that a contractor who, you know, if he, if he took the traditional contractor path of he was a great technician, he made great money yep. and then was like, you know what, I'm going to do it on my own. And then he went through this whole process where he learned how to run a business. And now he's at the end and he's like, I guess I can sell. What are some of the questions you ask to clients who are maybe thinking about this to kind of get them to define their goalpost and sure. so you guys know what process to move forward? Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. One, one of the things that we obviously want to know is, you know, what is it that they're looking for? Are they looking for? And, and, and it's different in every case and every transaction takes on its, it, its, its own form. But one of the things that we always like to know is what are you looking for? Are you looking for a partner to fuel your growth? Is it a cash out strategy? You know, are you looking to retire? And kind of depending on where the particular contractor is in his life cycle, you know, a lot of that dictates it, right? And so there are times, you know, I have, I have a guy right now who's, who's younger, he wants to be a platform, right? He doesn't want to join, you know, Wrench or, or TurnPoint or one of these other big groups. He wants to be the next, you know, Horizon, the next TurnPoint. He wants to go out and he's built a really good management team. So I think understanding, you know, where they want to go, right? And, and for some guys, you know, they want to join something. They don't want to do all that work. It's kind of nice to join an organization that, that has a lot of that, that has, you know, the best practices, that has some purchasing power, and they can stay localized and just run their branch, right? That's sort of the wrench model, right? And, and so I've seen, you know, kind of different models that have been born out of private equity and the different things they've done. And I can explain kind of the different variables and, 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 and then be able to go and be able to show, you know, potential seller what he's, what he's looking for. And then, you know, it's, it's usually interactive. It's a Q and A and we, and we, we like to have those kinds of, you know, fluid conversations and, and figure out what, what they really want out of it. And then it's our job to go out and find them, you know, what they want, what they're looking for. Got it. Um, so in terms of stuff like the Wrench Group and TurnPoint Services, I know a couple of business owners who have sold to those um, to those larger entities. Are those considered private equity or no? Yeah. So so they're what I would call them a strategic back private equity, right? So they are strategic. Wrench Group is a strategic. You know, most people wouldn't even know. They're a great line. The guy who runs Wrench, Ken Haynes, he's the uh, CEO of Wrench. One of the things he said to me through the years, which was a great line, he's like, you know, and I did his deal, you know, obviously with Alpine originally, he said, best thing that ever happened with being part of private equities is like, my employees don't know anything differently and my customers don't know anything differently. And as he's doing these transactions, he's had these material events along the way, which, you know, life altering, you know, financial, financial events. And so from the, uh, from the customer standpoint, and even from the employee standpoint, you know, nothing much changes, right? And, and, and the idea is with, with private equity, they're not trying to get in. They may have some ways to help or assist, but they're not trying to recreate the wheel. They want the existing business. What they're really buying is the people and, and, the, and, and, the, and the customers, right? And so they just want, the, they obviously, it's critical for them for, for that to stick, right? It's critical for the employees not to leave and to upset the workforce. It's also critical for the phone to keep ringing and the opportunities to keep being created and, and that type of thing. And so it shouldn't change anything, 
right? The idea is, you know, maybe it enhances and there's best practices they can share by being part of an organization. But on a day-to-day -day basis, the, the business as it stands today before the transaction should be largely, should look largely the same as it does after, right? Does most of these brands, you know, they still use the legacy brand, the brand doesn't change. There's been once in a while, there's, there's an example where it does change, but most of them, it, it doesn't really change. And so, you know, it should be business as usual for the, for the employees, you know, nobody ever wants to take away a benefit. So if they're getting something, the idea is, you know, they don't, they don't go backwards, they go forward and they, they add to it. And, and the opportunity should increase as they join a, a different organization. But the private equity isn't, isn't, isn't looking to go in and make wholesale changes in the operation. Tell me more about private equity. We, we, we've alluded to it a bunch. And so let's just, sure. you tell me everything you know and want to say about private equity. We, 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 we wouldn't have enough time for me to tell you everything <laughs> I, I know about private equity, right? But um, pri private equity, you know, it's, it's, it's a different vehicle than say the public markets, right? You don't have the same Sarbanes-Oxley and the same kind of you know, requirements that the, that, the publicly, that the public entities have. It's a way, you know, for, to, to deploy money. There's, we constantly hear from PE folks, they have a lot of dry capital, a lot of dry powder, you know, that they, that they want to deploy in the industry. And they look at our space and they see how fragmented it is and they see the opportunity to, to kind of take these businesses and scale them. You know, I did a deal in, uh, in New Jersey once upon a time and they said they were in 50,000 unique homes a year. And I was like, man, it's pretty impressive, right? It's a nice number. And they're like, we think we could be in 3 million homes in the state of New Jersey. They were in central New Jersey and they went north and south. And they were like, so they're penetrating 1.67% of quick math. I know I happen to know that number, but they're penetrating 1.67% of the market. So you think about the opportunity they have to, to continue to grow. And I think that's one of the things that private equity really likes about the space is how fragmented it is. You know, even even if you look at some of the dominant players in a certain market, what are they really getting? Five, maybe ten percent of the market, right? So there's so much room to grow organically and to keep growing organically, and and so there's a number of reasons why PEs kind of come into the space, and and they've come in in force, right? And it's you know I, I kept wondering if it's going to slow down, and it's actually been the exact opposite. Private equity keeps wanting to, to find more 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 operations to to up. Uh, partner up with and, and to keep growing. And it's like, one of the things I wonder is where does it go from here? There's been all this private equity interest. Does somebody like eventually take all these different ones and try to consolidate and maybe take it public at some point, right? Because some of these companies have grown so much, but they generate, you know, these businesses generate so much cash flow, right? The successful businesses generate so much cash flow. So they do provide a nice return on the business. And then you figure in the, the leverage that they're bringing and they, you know, that what changes a little bit from kind of, owned individually is you, you, you got to keep the profits and you got to dictate, you know, if you're putting the money in your pocket or what you're using the money for with private equity, you don't really get that same, that same distribution, the, the profits are really used to pay down debt or maybe reinvest in some other assets where they make their, their bang on the, on the buck is when they sell it to somebody else. There's, there's actually a great video. I can send it to you offline by Warren Buffett. And he talks about, you know, what's, what's private equity and what he does, what it does. And he's like, you know, they, they take the companies, they increase the revenue, they increase the profits, you know, they add to it, they try to make it bigger, and then they sell it to, you know, another private equity firm. And, and, and the circle just, uh, you know, keeps going and, and, and on to the next guy who's going to continue to have that organic growth, maybe have the acquisition growth and, and keep going and try to get the, uh, the next high multiple in, in the space. And what we've seen is with some of the larger guys, they're really able to get, you know, aggressive multiples really high multiples in the space and and it and it just uh it just keeps going so it's been, it's been it's been really neat to see i mean the main thing that i'm hearing right now is that if you're a contractor who's built a, a pretty good business you're building an asset you're building an asset that people want uh you're you made a good decision way to go bud exactly exactly <laughs> It's funny. One of the uh, one one of the guys in my office. We all we we joke about if we knew what we knew like back in high school. We'd been like, let's just open a contracting business and grow it over the next thirty years. I say the exact same thing, especially as from what I hear, even just has like female comfort advisors. Um, right. They tend to perform much not much better than their male counterparts, but there's a lot of that trust factor there. And I think about it all the time. I'm like, you know what? If service time doesn't work out, maybe I'll just get my uh, my master plumbing license. You know, right, right. It's, um, it's amazing. <laughs> I know uh, you guys picked a good, good
good line of work. Congratulations. Yeah. Yes. Um, let's talk about the difference between mergers and acquisitions. Um, mm -hmm. So obviously in the case of Horizon and then the Wrench Group, you've got private equity that are trying to buy up these really successful brands and, and grow them organically. Um, how much, so yeah, talk to me about the difference between those mergers versus acquisitions. What do you usually spend your time on and, and how should contractors look at those two, uh, those two traditional terms? So, so, you know, I view myself as an M&A expert, right? So I'm a, I'm a merger and acquisition expert, but differentiating between a merger and an acquisition, an acquisition is, is more of the, a buyout, you know, they're completely buying something out and, and a merger is more of a, of a partnership, but fundamentally there's not much difference between the two, right? So you may, you know, and that goes again into, you know, maybe selling a piece of the business and not selling the entire business, right? So kind of depending on the size, you know, sometimes it's just an outright acquisition, you're tucking something in, right? And some, you know, some of the deals are, are smaller and, that, and that's easy to do a full acquisition. A, a merger, you know, you, you start thinking about the tax structure at the top and I don't want to bring you down into the weeds on the, uh, on the tax structure, but there's different ways to merge into different entities so that the buyer gets some, some tax benefits, some step up in basis and, and those type of, of different things. So I'd say the bigger deals tend to be more along the lines of mergers. The, the smaller deals tend to be more outright acquisitions, but fundamentally from our standpoint, when the work that we do and what goes, and what goes into it, there's, there's not a ton of difference and it's still a transaction. It's still a transaction. Would you say that regardless, the owner of the business that's being acquired or merged is still going to have a significant financial event in their life? Exactly. Very Got much it. so. Yeah. Uh, sounds very significant. So yes. if a contractor, the deal, but yes. <laughs> so if a contractor is, has the goals to, uh, to at one point have a big financial event in their, in their future, what are the things that they should be doing now to set them up for success? So one of the most important things they should do now is, and, and obviously this comes across as a little self-serving since I'm a CPA, but they should be getting their books in order, right? That's, you know, most important thing, and, and, and I guess one of the things that, that, that we've seen, and this is a, maybe a good lesson for the contractors, it's we always find the guys that are bigger have the most systems and process in place and are the most organized and are able to pull data. And the smaller guys, you know, so, so for me, the, it's actually easier to work with the bigger guys because you're, you're, getting, you're getting the stuff that you need, right? The smaller guys, you're, you're kind of constantly like trying to pull data and trying to get them organized. And so the first thing, you know, the most important thing they should do is, is uh, get, the, get the financial house in order, get GAP compliant, you know, start working with all the, all the relative, you know, financial aspects of it. And a lot of that is bringing in somebody, you know, an owner can't do everything himself. And typically when I've met operators, they don't want to spend money on the scorekeeper, right? Accountants by nature are scorekeepers. They're not adding to the bottom line, but the investment in making in, in a really good controller, CFO type of person is going to pay off at the exit. And I think that's, you know, certainly a, a critical, a critical part of the, uh, of the part of the process. Now there's other things that you should be thinking about as you, uh, as you're growing your business, right? There's, there's the time when you're in the, when the growth strategy, and then there's a time when you're a little bit more, a little bit more in the, in the uh, mature marketplace. Right. So there's things you should be doing as you're growing your business and, and there's a payoff in doing that. Right. But as you think about selling your business, you may not get that investment back. So you've got to kind of think about when you pull back off of the, off of the throttle. Marketing is a good example. When you have marketing expense, you know, as you're growing your business, you may start to spend, you know, 10, 11, maybe even 12% on, on marketing. But as you, as you reach a critical point, as you get to a certain point, you know, it's probably more realistic that you're spending six or 7%, right? So you've streamlined your marketing, you've tracked your marketing, you know, where you're getting the, the most optimization. So, and you're in the growth phase, you're willing to do a little bit more, but as you think about, you know, coming out of that growth phase and being a little bit more, more mature in the marketplace, you want to throttle back, you, you want to throttle back your marketing. Another, you know, big thing that contractors should always be doing is service contracts, right? Service contracts. We all recognize the benefit of, the, of service contracts. You're putting a nice fence around your, uh, around your customer, something breaks. They're not picking up the phone book to call anybody. They're calling the person they have the service contract. So always be building your service contract base, no matter where you are in the cycle. And buyers, you know, it's reoccurring revenue. It's, it's also an opportunity, right? When, you have, when you're on a routine maintenance, 
you know, you're in the house and, and, and there's, there's an instant opportunity to, uh, to, look, to look for things and figure out, you know, the, your, your best, your, your good, best and, and better opportunities, right? And, and, and figure out it's, it's again, a, a nice selling opportunity, but that's obviously an important thing to continue to build your, uh, your, your service contract pace. Uh, succession planning, all, you know, big thing, right? So if you've got a, an owner who's, you know, looking at a sale as, you know, I'm getting out of the business, sure better have developed his, uh, his team around him. He sure have developed, you know, what that bench looks like and who his key people are. And, you know, if he wants to leave, he, be he better have a, a good GM, you know, somebody in that, in that driver's seat. And, and that's, that's a really critical path forward. Again, buyers are looking to buy the people. So if you haven't developed a team underneath you, it's, it's going to be a little bit more challenging, especially if you want to leave the business. So if you, if you think about selling and you think about your wanting to exit, having, you know, the, the key guys in, in critical seats or girls, right? The key guys or girls in critical seats is, is certainly uh, an important. We always say, you know, and this, this one's harder, but acquisitions, you know, you got to have a plan. It seems easy for me to sit up here and, and talk about doing acquisitions, but acquisitions are not easy, but if you can do them right, they can be very accretive. There's usually some back office savings, you know, there should be some synergies. And if you have the plan to, uh, to do the acquisition, it's, it's, it's pretty important. And, and uh, you know, we recommend that, uh, that contractors look into acquisitions. Now, the more you can integrate those into your operations before you think about selling, the better it is. You know, sometimes just the way timing works out, it doesn't necessarily always happen, but the more you've integrated the results, the more successful will be in adding value to your, to your enterprise value and getting you more for your business. Uh, so I want to talk about acquisitions, actually, with the point that you just said. Um, so I'm assuming you mean acquisitions by growth. So say you have like a 10 truck operation uh, in your town and there's, you have a competitor that maybe has three trucks and you're like, you know what, let me buy them. So this way I can get their database. I can get any memberships they're, they're um, dealing with. So when, right. when would you say acquisition through growth is a smart strategy? And when would you say it's maybe not appropriate? So there's a couple things. One, obviously, it's the terms of the acquisition, right? And if you have an opportunistic acquisition, then it makes that then it makes a lot of sense to to do it despite the timing of it, right? But again, it kind of goes where you are in the life cycle. As you're growing your business and you have the opportunity to expand your customer base, you think, you know that's going to lead to more revenue. So the sooner you do it, the sooner you get the results in, the better off it's going to be. Now, again, integrating integration, which is a big part of acquisition easy buzzword, but there's nothing easy about the integration. And sometimes, you know, culture is, is very important when you think about an acquisition, right? And, it, and it's making sure the cultures line up. And the last thing you want to do is bring two companies together who have completely different cultures. Guess what's going to happen when, when that's the case, right? You're going to lose half your work. You're going to lose some of the guys because it's just, it's not a culture fit. So there's things to look at when you're doing an acquisition and, and it's important to understand kind of the basics that go into it and what an integration plan looks like and how exactly you're going to do it. But the point is, and we, we've talked about this and, and, and we've done webinars on this, one plus one is not going to be two. It, it should not be two, right? It should be something greater than two, right? So when you take these two companies and you, and you put them together, there should be some significant savings and, you know, some back office, you know, synergies and different things like that, that, that make it really accretive, you know, to the bottom line. So, I'm, I'm a big proponent of, of doing acquisitions, provided you have the right operator, right? You're only as good as the people. So if you have the, the people to, to do it and, and, and execute the plan, it's a great thing to do. If you don't, it's going to be a little bit more of a struggle. But, you know, we certainly seen several examples of doing acquisitions and, and what it means. And, and to, your, to your point, Jackie, about adding, you know, the 10 person truck and adding three, that makes sense all day long as long as there's a culture fit and you can integrate them and do everything like that. Got it. Thanks, Fred. So we, we've alluded to now like the succession component and also the culture fit. So what are some things that owners should be doing to, to groom their uh, staff, the, the, the folks who work for them to kind of take on those roles? What kind of conversations should they be having with their GMs? You know, sure. like when should they be saying like, hey, tap, tap, uh, right. I'm, I'm going to be leaving here in a little right. bit. Uh, so, you know, what should that be looking, what should that look like, you know, as they prepare to, to have that big financial event? So, so what I would say is there's a lot of, you know, serial entrepreneurs and guys in the space and it's, and it's hard for them to, to give up the control. Right. And they built this successful business and 
you know, they, they know the business and it's hard for them to take that step back to, to be able to give up, to get, be able to give up some of that control. And what we found are the guys who are willing to, you know, put the right guys in seat and let them, you know, you got to manage them a little bit. You got to give them the tools so that they succeed. But the ones who are willing to, uh, you know, allow, allow the, uh, the guy they're grooming to the, the ability to succeed and grow the business and take a step back and, you know, be there to support them, but not be so involved in the day-to-day stuff. We find that's really important, right? And those, and those are the ones who, who win and are able to walk away from the business. But we've certainly seen other, other folks who it's, it's hard, it's their baby and it's hard for them to, to, to step back and allow other people to do it. And, you know, it's, it's also an ego thing, right? It's, they know what they're doing and it's hard for them to believe that somebody else could do just as good a job as them, if not more, and have some different creative ideas. So I think the ability to walk it back a little bit Take us still manage the business, but allow the allow that new person and let's call it the the new GM to to flourish is is a is a, is a critical path forward. What about in terms of? I agree with this, by the way. This is very aligned with everything I've heard from the podcast before. Hire the right people, get out of their way. Um, but what about when it comes to communicating with those folks that you're going to leave? Do you ever see like GMs that are like, whoa, 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 I don't want to work here if you're not here, or? Or, hey, what if I wanted to buy? You know, what are some potential yeah. outcomes that happen once these conversations take place? So we get asked constantly, when's the right time to, to tell our folks that we've even in, engaged you guys and how do we protect confidentiality? And, you know, there's, I've seen different guys do different things. Some people have been more of an open book and they say, look, this is what's going to happen. The one real benefit by them partnering up with somebody is it should provide further liquidity, you know, for some of the key folks, right? A lot of, a lot of these private equity groups will have some sort of, we'll call it phantom equity or a management incentive pool. So the opportunity, you know, for the, for the key guys in the organization increases, increases with a transaction, but then it becomes, you know, when's the right time to do it. And I always say, look, a buyer who's buying your business and you're looking at transaction transitionality, either, you know, close to close or even within a couple of years, guess what? They're going to want to meet the key people in that organization and know what they're buying, right? So you're going to have to have that conversation anyways. And some of them are like, okay, we get it, Fred, but not yet. Show us that, you know, what we have is real. And typically, you know, at some point during the, uh, during the deal cycle, once you're in, in, in an LOI and you have a, an exclusive arrangement with a buyer and they're digging in and doing all their diligence, at some point, you're going to have to have that conversation with the key people because the buyer is going to want to know what, you know, is going to want to meet those key people, see if they're talented. And, and so there's usually a small group of, of individuals within the, in an organization who are brought into the, uh, who are brought into the conversation. Obviously the more people who know about it, the more word gets out and you know, you know how people respond. The only thing that's constant in this industry is change. Right. But you know, so I, there, there's a fine line to walk there by making sure the key people know, but you know, trying to keep it as, as buttoned up as you can until the uh, transaction is really at, close to close or, or at closing. And a lot of times you, you find people, you, the, the transaction closes and we tend to, when the deal closes, we tend to get be obviously very much less involved, but we've heard about meetings when they bring in the whole workforce and they announce it. And, you know, most of the times it's the owner's perception, right? If the owner's like, look, this is a great opportunity for you guys. And this is, you know, gives some of the reasons why they made a decision. You know, there's maybe a little bit of a of a shock factor, but then ten minutes later, they're you know back to work and back to creating their own their own opportunities, and it's business as usual. And so, there there is a little bit of a of of, of the right way to to go about managing it. And 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 I do find the folks that that bring in kind of their their core people up front, the deals tend to work a little bit better and a little bit more smoother. Yeah, and I think you also just touched upon is such a key point there, which is your attitude. You know, what's the, what's the vibe that the owner brings when he finally makes that announcement? So the more optimistic you are, the more positive you are, the more positive your people will be. Exactly. It's it's amazing how important that is. And, you know, obviously the partner or or the buyer, they, they do try to spend a little bit of time together you know, kind of beforehand massaging that message and and make sure, and make sure that the right message is, is conveyed to the team. Got it. Um, this conversation's flying by, uh, but I want to talk a little bit about you know KPIs and like what what are some like big indicators to an owner that like ooh maybe now is a time to consider taking this step onto um, into M and A like what is what what kind of signs should they be looking for in their business because 
theoretically, you could have as many trucks, you could have five trucks, you could have 500, you know, uh, really right. when to sell is up to you. But are there any things that people should be looking for? Well, there are, there are some things that they can control, right, which are the internal factors and some of the KPIs, and I'll get back to that in a second. Then there's the external factors. What's the market conditions? What are interest rates? And different things along that. So there's the external and the internal, right? We're in a period right now, and going back over 22 years, it hasn't always been like this. So the, 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 the microeconomics that we're in right now and the ability to transact at a higher multiple you know, I, I spoke at an event last year and I said, you know, seven's the new five, right? So five was the, was the multiple kind of historically. And for those businesses, we're getting seven and for businesses kind of above that. A lot of it's, you know, there's a lot of factors, you know, that we've touched on who's the management team and how many service agreements and, 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 and various things like that. What drives price mostly for the, for the more successful uh, contractors is size. The bigger you are, the more EBITDA, the more revenue, you're gonna you're gonna get the better outcome, right? And it, and it's a part of it's just kind of a personal decision as to when you want to do it. And you know we we've talked to guys you know for years, and it's it's when it's when they want to go. And sometimes you know I've I've been telling people recently that I've been talking to you for years. It's actually worked in your favor because multiples have continued to gone up, right? And do I expect at some point just you know through the through the cycle, you know? Price will come down, multiples will correct, you know, whether we get into a recession as a, as a country or what have you. So there are certain, you know, factors that happen. But, you know, guys who are buttoned up and who are using KPIs and, and who really manage their business, looking at the, uh, the right KPIs, that's going to come through in the management meetings, right? And so when we bring folks to town and we go through kind of the process and bring different bidders to town and they see, you know, the KPIs are using and how folks are managing the business, that becomes pretty compelling to them. And the guys who do it the right way and have the right KPIs in place, guess what? They become a more attractive asset and you, you're, you may be able to have a, a, a better outcome. And you know, there are certain guys, again, the smaller guys who aren't using KPIs, they're not getting as much for their business, right? For, for obvious reasons, it's, you know, so the guys who have really embraced it and, and, and used it and, and, and managed their business through, and you can see all that, you know, through, the work that we do and kind of how we present the companies. And then that comes out through meeting the team and meeting the, uh, the head guys, you know, those guys are, are really going to succeed and, and, and get the uh, upper end of the, uh, of the multiple range. I love it. And I love that you mentioned EBITDA, EBITDA too. Uh, I know a lot of people probably know what this is, but would you mind defining it for folks who do not? Yes. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a little caveat on the definition, but it's earnings before interest taxes, depreciation and amortization. I like to, uh, so basically it measures cash flow. That's the idea is it measures, it measures true cash flow of the business, right? I actually like to expand the EBITDA definition. I say it's EBITDA plus another A, and that other A is addbacks, right? So those are all the things that are non-recurring in your business. You know, a lot of folks, you know, live out of their business. They have personal, you know, charges that go out of the, uh, they, that, that they run through the business and that type of thing. And so, We've obviously doing this for 22 years. We've learned some tricks about addbacks, and there's different addbacks that can apply. I like to say, you know, and these are a little bit harder when it comes to business addbacks. But if you've got the ability to look back and say, you know, I did something that just totally didn't work out, and there was costs associated with that, even though it was a business expense, I've successfully argued, you know, that those can be addbacks, right? So if there's a marketing campaign that's coming off the books. If there's, I had a client once who had an ambassador program that, that didn't work out and he scrapped the ambassador program. So the costs associated with that, we've gotten an ad back. Someone, when we talked about acquisitions and, and how creative acquisitions can be, well, guess what? As we talked about, the timing doesn't always work out, right? So if you have an acquisition that's between, you know, you haven't integrated for a full year, you don't know the full year results. We're going to look for an ad back to give you the full year results, right? As if you had owned it the full year. So the, that extra A in the EBITDA definition is really important. Then you take that number and whatever it is times a multiple, it becomes pretty material, right? So if it's, let's just say there's a hundred grand worth of an ad backs, I mentioned a seven multiple earlier. Now you're talking about 700 grand, you know, that you've just added to the enterprise value. So there's a lot of different ways to, to increase the valuation. And it's one of the things that we pride ourselves on is getting the EBITDA right. And I think that's why we're as successful as, as we are at getting deals over the finish line, because we understand what's legitimate EBITDA and what's not. And we try to put a number out there that will stand up that the, the buyers will have, as I mentioned earlier, will have you know, quality of earnings and they'll go in and 
part of Q of E. It's sort of like an audit, but they also want to make sure things are in the right period. When you own the business, you may not necessarily care that the, uh, whether it's in the right period or not, because it happened in 18. So it's, you know, but it was really belonged in 17. So there's different things along those lines that, uh, that, that we make sure, but EBITDA is what everyone's looking at. And that's how all the deals are measured. And, you know, contractors focus in on net income. It's a little bit like EBITDA, but you got to add back all the depreciation, interest, amortization, and add backs to get to that, to get to that EBITDA number. Love it. Thank you for explaining that. Um, so we have yeah. about nine-ish minutes left. You've mentioned already quite a few very impressive businesses that you've worked with, but I would love if you could kind of tell me the story of one particularly memorable experience you had with a service client who was looking to sell and, and how it worked out for them. Sure. So I'll, 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 use, uh, I'll use Horizon because you know, I've, I've watched those guys. First time I did a deal with them was 1999, right? So I've watched those guys kind of grow and just seeing their remarkable growth that they had through the years and being able to watch and stay close to those guys. And, and Dave, Dave Geiger would always say to me, when I get here, I'm ready. And, 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 and I'd be like, Dave, are you ready yet? And he'd be like, nope, I told you when I get here. And he got to a certain point and, and, he was, and he was ready to go and had a really successful outcome, had a great partnership with Sun. When under Sun's uh, guidance, they, they did 10 acquisitions and you know, continued to uh, use the Horizon playbook. And Sun had a really successful outcome last November when they sold to, to New Mountain. And it's, it's, it's been a, a really incredible story just to witness and be a part of and, and do you know, so many transactions you know, with them. That's awesome. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you've how you've gotten involved in the service Titan space, and you know how you work with so many of our of our wonderful customers. Sure. So Brian Cohen, who's my business strategist, I think he's, I guess, going all the trade shows. We, we've kept running into you guys, and I remember, you know, pretty early on, there there was always a gap. I'll even go back to the Blue Dot days. We were one of the biggest problems we had at Blue Dot is we didn't have a common a, a common platform. We didn't have you know software and. I remember going to these meetings at SAP and we were trying to figure out and the investment was so huge. And, you know, I don't know exactly when it was somewhere in the five to 10 year range, you guys came along and just kind of kept popping up everywhere. And the more I sat through, you know, some of these, some of these, uh, you know, management meetings and saw kind of the benefits of service Titan, it was, it was incredible to see and, and see, you know, how, how much it benefited the contractor. And it's been, a, it's been a, uh, it's been a really great experience to, uh, you know, to, to see you guys and see how you've evolved. And you guys are clearly the, the leader in, in the space. And, you know, all the, all the contractors that I work with are, uh, are, are very happy with, with, you know, the, the information that you get. And I think it allows them to be a lot more efficient. And it's, it's been, it's been, uh, it's, it's, it's been incredible to, to kind of watch it from, from my end as, as somebody who's been in the industry as long as I have. Right. Well, thank you. I imagine it's also kind of nice if uh, you're merging two businesses together and they both use Service Titan. It, it definitely makes it easier, right? And so it, it, it's also nice how some of these uh, some of these groups, you know, for instance, uh, TurnPoint, which you know wasn't on originally, and they uh, they got into Service Titan, and now they they're able to like within like three days after closing an acquisition, get them all integrated, and they they've really figured out how to do it quickly and. You know, it, it, it's been nice to see. And then you see the growth that happens once they're on service Titan. It's just incredible. That's awesome. Um, is there anything we should have talked about? I mean, I'm sure there was, but is there any one lesson that we should have talked about that we didn't? And it, when it comes to selling a business, acquiring a business, merging your business into someone else's, um, any final tidbit of knowledge you'd like sure. to include? I, you know, I would say a couple things, you know, num number one is with all this private equity interest in the space and I'm amazed at how many people they have calling owners directly and trying to reach out. You know, it, I, the, there's mistakes that we see contractors make all the time, right? They, they think they can go at it alone and, and, they, and they try to do it. And I think they're, 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 they're fooling themselves a little bit. And I think it's important, whether it's us or somebody else, to make sure you have an intermediary, make sure you have somebody who's, you know, watching your back. These guys are experienced, savvy deal makers with tons of deal experience. And, for a contractor who understands the contracting business but doesn't understand, you know, a transaction, I think it's it, it's very short-sighted for them not to uh, not to use somebody, not to use somebody else, and and not to have somebody, you know, who makes sure that they have, you know, kind of their back and make sure they're negotiating, you know, everything that that's that's proper. Um, let me see what what else is. Um, is, is important. I think it's, you know, understanding the worth of your business, right? Understanding a business valuation, how you do a business valuation. It's, 
it is another thing that that we like to do for our clients. We do both, you know, an informal valuation, which is, hey, we'll we'll sign an NDA, give us give us, you know, some basic information. We can kind of give you a range of where the uh, where where your asset would trade for. And then we also do a more formal valuation, which we have to charge money for because it's a lot of work, but we go through and figure out what your gap deficiencies are and all of those different things. And I think doing, doing some of that prep work up front, you know, it's, it's, it's important. Transactions, you know, can seem easy. They're not, they're complicated, they're hard and, and, and making sure you have somebody, you know, kind of working through it and, and understanding, you know, everything that goes into a transaction. And it's, it's easy just to look at the uh, the enterprise value, what the what the dollar amounts are, but there's so many other different points of a transaction that that are important. We didn't even mention, you know, working capital, right? And so, working capital is part of every deal, and how much working capital you need to leave behind, what's normal, and you know, there's there's certainly games that buyers can play with uh, with the working capital calculation and making sure that that's you know buttoned up appropriately would would be another good one. But a lot of different points to the deal. Uh, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing, Fred. Sure. Uh, if the folks who are listening want to get in contact with you, where can they find you? So we're, we're on the internet at uh, www.sfpadvisors. You can find all of our contact information you know, through our website is probably the best way. Got it. I'm almost regretful that I didn't talk to you actually about what it's like to, to run your business, uh, which is really like the fundamentals of this, of this show. But uh, I still think we got some incredible information. Are you ready for my, uh, are you ready for my, my rapid fire questions? All right. How do you take your coffee? You know, I, I'm pretty much a chai, uh, a chai tea drinker. I don't drink a lot of coffee. I tend to take a sip out of my wife's, but that, that's about it. So I'm not a big coffee drinker. Nice. I love the chai tea. Um, if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would it be? That's a, that's a good one. I'm, I'm going to go to an old uh, sports guy that I uh, really admired. Uh, he was a little bit older than me, but Roberto Clemente. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. Where, what, like what, what sports, what kind of sports guy was he? I'm not a sports person at all. So you got to tell me. He, he was a, a baseball player that I, I guess my dad used to grow up, you know, when I, I he was, he was much older. I, he wasn't part of the generation that I watched, but he was a, a Latin, like one of the first big Latin player, baseball players in, in America. My dad would just say how he was so adored in Pittsburgh, which is where I'm born from. And, you know, he, uh, he was, he was incredible to, to watch and the fans loved them. And, the, the irony is he actually 3000 hits in major leagues, kind of a big deal. He landed on exactly 3000 hits and then he died uh, like on some relief effort for, for a hurricane. So he was helping like people from Nicaragua and he was sending relief supplies and he was on the plane, the plane crashed and it was kind of a tragic story. So wow, to, to, uh, to you know, hear, hear from him, but he's not around anymore. Oh, wow. That's insane. Also, I, I could tell you were an East Coaster because you talk really fast, uh, just like me. Uh, what is the number one thing you're trying to learn more about right now? Number one thing I'm trying to learn more about right now, besides COVID and the impact of, uh, you know, the kids and all that type of thing, because that's, you know, pretty relevant. And it's, you don't know what information is, uh, is, is real out there. I'd say, you know, kind of specific to the industry. And one of the things that I'm really curious, and I mentioned this earlier, is where does it go from here, right? So you've got all these different PE groups who are buying and, you know, where does it end up? Does, you know, does it end up in a, in a, pub, in a public vehicle where, you know, there's another wave of consolidation or what happens from here? So that's, that's something I'm, I'm certainly curious about. Definitely. And for the record, this interview will go live probably in September and which place, at uh, which who knows what's going to happen with COVID? Who knows that if it'll actually like materialize into a physical monster and then we're in like right. a Godzilla type of situation? We'll find out. Um, okay, if money weren't an object, so you'd have unlimited resources, what's the first thing you would do? Buy a private plane. Nice. Are you a pilot? I'm not, but I, I, you know, the few times I've flown private, it's, uh, it's, it's just so, uh, it's, it's so time efficient and it's, it's so enjoyable and it's, it would make my job, you know, if I could pop into uh, locations, you know, several locations in a day, it would, it would make my job just so much more efficient. Nice. Um, what's the number one thing every contractor should do to run a successful business? Grow the service contract base. Agreed. All right. Well, Fred, I want to thank you. This conversation was absolutely delightful. I was a little intimidated by it because I truly am not an expert in your field, but right. uh, you did a fantastic job explaining it and relating it back to our audience. So I want to thank you.
Awesome. I, I, I enjoy it. So thank, thanks for having me. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Fred. To watch him and his business partner, Brian Cohen, share some actionable tips on how to sell your service business, go to servicetitan.com SFP or click the link in our show notes. Ever wonder how much your business is worth? So many owners ask that question and have no idea where to turn for an answer. In just a few clicks, Service Titan's new Service Business Valuation Calculator can give you an easy and free estimate of the current value of your business. Whether you're thinking about selling your company or looking to track growth, check it out now. Visit servicetitan.com value. Again, that's servicetitan.com value. See how much your business is worth today. Want to network with fellow service entrepreneurs and former guests of this podcast? Join our private Facebook group, Toolbox for the Trades, to get immediate access to the best tips, tricks, and tactics from fellow service entrepreneurs. Visit facebook.com slash group slash toolbox for the trades, or click the link in our show notes to join. See you online.